Hello and welcome to another episode of In Theory, the podcast of the JHI blog. I'm Dishakarna Ajani. I'm joined today by Nicole Kuinhinga Boitiz, Research Fellow at Clare Hall, Cambridge, and the Executive Director of the Toynbee Prize Foundation. Her book, Asian Place, Filipino Nation, A Global Intellectual History of the Philippine Revolution, 1887 to 1912, was published in 2020 by Columbia University Press. So how did you come to this project in the first place? Um, so in international history and in imperial history, but especially in Asian history, the turn of the 20th century is a crucial turning point and a global moment with the scramble for Africa, intensification of colonialism, monopoly capitalism, imperial consolidation and violence and resulting local resistance, but also the advent of moving pictures, literary modernism, global intellectual flourishing and political experimentation. It's a time when there's a sense, as Paul Kennedy put it, of having to run faster to remain in the same place. And this important global moment of the late 19th to early 20th century is so often apprehended in Asian historiography through a bilateral framework privileging relations with the West. So seminal studies of France and the country that would become Vietnam on one hand and of the US and the Philippines on the other. Uh, the foundational long Philippine revolution of 1896 to 1905, which began against Spain and continued against the United States and represents the creation of the concept of the Filipino nation, as well as the first modern secular nation state in Asia, took place against a backdrop of imperial incorporation and local resistance that was truly region-wide. To sketch just a quick scene, this includes the French conquest of Cambodia, Vietnam and Laos, and the creation of French Indochina by 1897, the 1885 to 1888 Convoy movement, the anti-French revolt in Cambodia at the same time, full extension of direct Dutch colonial rule throughout the Netherlands East Indies from 1872 to 1910, against stiff resistance, especially in Aceh, the centralization of British power in the Federated Malay States from the 1890s to 1910s, British annexation of Upper Burma following the Third Anglo-Burmese War in 1885, the incorporation of Burma as a province of British India by 1897, and formation of the Burmese nationalist movement continuing to the 1920s. All this alongside the emergence of Japan as a non-Western imperial power after the Meiji Restoration of 1868, early exertion of its dominance over Korea in 1876, an annexation of Korea in 1910, as well as of Taiwan beginning 1895. There are so many more examples I could provide, but I'll just stop there. Yet this truly transnational and regional historical setting has barely been incorporated into the locally and Western-oriented historiography of the Philippine Revolution. The historical literature treats the revolution as if it happened in a completely different corner of the world entirely, without reference to this regional setting or to Asia at all. Um, my ongoing focus on the Asian context of Philippine history actually runs counter to the traditional assumption of the literature, the assumption that the Filipino self-image is historically non-Asian, seeing itself as belonging to the Western Hemisphere. Early post-war and Cold War Southeast Asian studies, such as D.G. E. Hall's seminal works, excluded the Philippines from studies of the region entirely. Meanwhile, the more recent global turn and international historical turn has um, affected the Philippine Revolution's historiography by internationalizing it along imperial lines, so analyzing it with or against the former Western imperial powers or the former colonies of Spain and the US, such as Puerto Rico. And as a Filipina studying global intellectual history, 
It just seemed to me, frankly, impossible and at best Eurocentric or imperial to believe that the Philippine Revolution was divorced from the intellectual ferment and political tumult of Asia in the manner that the historiography of the revolution had presented it to be. Uh, so I wondered, what impact did the revolution have in Southeast Asia and what intellectual threads in the Philippine political discourses connected it to the corollary anti-imperial and positive political imaginings of its Asian neighbors? During the early period of my doctorate at Yale, I was fascinated with Japanese pan-Asianism, and Jamil Aydin's book, The Politics of Anti-Westernism in Asia, really helped orient me toward the crisis of legitimacy of the single Eurocentric world order of the 20th century. So seeking what may obtain from a more regional and global view of the Philippine Revolution, I returned to that foundational moment of Philippine history to unearth precisely what ground the Philippine nation built itself upon intellectually, excavating its neglected cosmopolitan and Asianist and pan-Asian regional moorings in particular. And I ended up reconnecting modern Philippine history to that of Southeast and East Asia from which it has been historiographically separated. In the process, I think we also gained insight into the longer ongoing histories of the construction and stitching together of modern Asia, as well as the 20th century history of the rise of the nation state as the legitimate political form. Mm -hmm. And with all of this is not only the backdrop and context, if you will, but basically, you know, really an important part of the story. What is it about the revolution then that makes it a turning point for you when you're talking about the place of the Philippines in Asia and in the world? To get the short answer to this, uh, the Philippine revolution proved to be a turning point in Southeast Asia, because rather than simply failing to maintain a traditional state as in Vietnam and Burma, or largely succeeding in maintaining a traditional state as in Cambodia and Thailand, it was briefly successful in establishing a new state, a secular republic. The revolution created the first Philippine Republic, a short-lived government and political vision that emerged from this larger, longer regional backdrop of quickening anti-colonialism and radical secular nationalism. The Philippine Revolution had wide reverberations in Southeast Asia, and it also did set a precedent globally in the 20th century as the first modern nationalist Republican uprising of the century, proceeding as it did the Irish Rebellion of 1916. And so you lay out the stakes of this book as, among other things, about the place of the Philippines in Southeast Asia as a region, about the place of Southeast Asia more broadly in the Pan-Asian movement, um, and so you're really looking at all of these things, both as discursive and geopolitical spaces. Um, and so I'm curious then to follow up on, on what you just said about the revolutionist turning point. What is it that's so striking to you about this shifting place of the Philippines in all of these different contexts? So Asia in this period is fascinating. Because of its formlessness, the idea of Asia serves as an index of the prevailing geopolitical and international ideological power structures in the region. It's a blank canvas upon which to project fantasies and fears. And its analysis also allowed me to inflect such purely international vectors with the vernacular vocabularies of power and politics that co-created them. I'll answer your question more specifically by attending to two or three of the Asias I concern myself with. Um, in the book and how the Philippines illuminates them. Uh, please bear with me if this is a rather long answer. Um, so the, there's firstly the scale of Asia within Pan-Asia. The turn of the 20th century Southeast Asian engagement with the Pan-Asian discourse emanating from Japan and China envisioned transnational anti-colonial political possibilities. 
It advocated Asian solidarity under the aid of Japan against the encroachments of Western imperialism, internalizing a loose belief in a vague evolutionary social Darwinism. My book interrogates this period Southeast Asian reformulation and practice of Pan-Asianism in the face of Western imperial consolidation and the rise of Japan, focusing on the Philippine case, but with an eye to the contemporaneous Vietnamese one. And my book incorporates the periphery into our understanding of Pan-Asianism and presents Pan-Asianism as a network practice and translingual learning process in addition to a discourse. In this, I aim to correct our exclusively intellectual, historical, and Northeast Asia-centric understandings of Pan-Asianism. My book shows that the revolutionary First Philippine Republic's foreign collaboration represents the first instance of fellow Pan-Asianists lending material aid toward anti-colonial revolution against a Western power rather than overthrow a domestic dynasty, and harnessing of transnational Pan-Asian networks of support, activism, and association toward doing so. This material dimension is crucial to understanding the Pan-Asianism of the colonized periphery and to incorporate the periphery into this history. Um, also crucial is the affective dimension in which fantasies, imagination, and a certain emotionality form much of the periphery's engagement with the model of Meiji-era Japan and Asian solidarity. My book argues for the importance of both dimensions as lenses through which the Pan-Asianism of the periphery can be recognized and made legible to the workings of the center. And this is important because the existing literature tends to discount most of anti-colonial pan-Asianism as not being true pan-Asianism because of its nationalist priorities. However, I argue that for the colonized periphery, no strategy could afford to be purely transnational because of the reality of localized everyday oppression. Yet many peripheral intellectuals and political activists also knew that any victory won within narrowly defined national terms would always be incomplete and vulnerable because of what they believe to be the global racial dimensions to colonialism. This is also the argument that Adam Gilichu makes for the post-colonial period in her recent book, World Making After Empire. The racialized social Darwinist frame through which peripheral pan-Asianists interpreted the international sphere thus presented nationalism and racialized internationalism as existentially and pragmatically entangled. And I think this is important in order for us to have a fuller understanding of the Asia within Pan-Asia and the ways in which it's being constituted and negotiated from within and without. Next, there's the creation of the concept of Southeast Asia as a coherent region and episteme, which was born of local anti-colonial regional collaboration, World War II military objectives, Japanese imperialism, Chinese and Japanese studies of Nanyang and Nanyo, and the post-World War II U.S. Academy that invested heavily in area specialists. Post-war area studies academics later identified persistent shared traits to justify their um, discipline, which was a military offshoot, and the categorization of Southeast Asia as a single region. And they identified things like bilateral kinship, high levels of female autonomy, leadership by men of prowess, spirit propitiation, and even houses resting on poles and a rice fish diet. Meanwhile, for Southeast Asians themselves, the explicit creation of the region as a self-conscious, coherent entity was also a mid-20th century story. The region's gradual self-conscious creation leans on third world consciousness and the multilateral regional organizations such as CETO and ASEAN, born of the Cold War and its exigencies. So the 19th century Filipino discourse covered in my book treated and apprehended the Philippine Southeast Asian neighbors through their colonial overlords, or as fellow Asians or Malays, but not as Southeast Asians. Nevertheless, the anti-colonial consciousness and Pan-Asian thinking and engagement described in my book 
was a historical force in the creation of Southeast Asia as a self-identified region. And this is the reason I anachronistically attend to it. So while I employ Southeast Asia as a heuristic and conceive of it as a political construct, I do also want to acknowledge the region's tangible natural reality, which is described by a biotic zone stretching from the Marianas Trench to the Bay of Bengal. This natural zone helped facilitate the trade, migration and exchange activities that would underwrite a subconscious region alongside the common experiences of colonial history, geopolitics, religious and cultural spread and positive world making that occurred therein. And I think that refocusing historical attention to East-East relations allows us to consider the internal and early constitution of what would come to be the region of Southeast Asia in the later part of the 20th century. And to see the creation of the region as something other than merely the byproduct of imperial war objectives and World War II allied military divisions. Lastly, to look at the specific Asia that was the edifice upon which the Filipino Ilustrados built their nation, the nationalist Filipino propaganda movement inscribed the new Filipino nation they were seeking to construct within a more ancient Asian landscape, imbued with a civilizational importance that would be recognizable even to Europeans. They apparently thought that this association with an older, richer, documented civilizational realm was necessary due to the visible lack of ancient kingdoms and ruins around which Filipinos could assemble their nationalism. It was also a way to counter the argument of Spanish and European thinkers who described the archipelago as overrun by an anarchy of tribes and races. In the propagandist's mouthpiece, La Solidaridad, Asia largely appears as constructed through the history of civilization, and it is noted for its heights of achievement, albeit in a defensive tone. And an important feature in their construction of Asia through the history of civilization was the premise that there is something like universal civilization and that it merely passed from one incarnation to another, from east to west and back again. This ephemeral unitary concept of civilization formed the mechanism by which the civilizational construction of Asia reconciled itself with the history of the rise and fall of great powers and the current state of material inequality between east and west. This is precisely the theoretical premise and intellectual moves that would characterize Japanese-sponsored World War II wartime Philippine president Jose P. Laurel's historical and political thinking and that grounded his pan-Asianism. A later member of the Katipunan, the secret society that started the Philippine Revolution and administered the first Philippine Republic, Apolinario Bini, took the propaganda movement's theorization a step further. Mobini reasoned that God allowed for the existence of avarice because it gave him a tool through which to, quote, extend civilization and humiliate the proud and exalt the humble, end quote. Um, this statement explains the existence of unequal progress within civilizations um, as, in, as uh, occurring at different points in time while unifying them as existing within a single universal narrative. In his thinking, Universal civilization is carried continuously and housed by many, indifferent whether it lands east or west, above or below the equator. This is not only sensational, but in Mabini's argumentation, racial. It is true, he wrote, that, quote, the colored race compared to the white race is inferior up to the present in culture and civilization. History teaches us that culture takes root not to perpetuate itself in a certain locality, but to flower and bear fruit, in order that the wind may spread its seeds to all distant regions, end quote. Um, so what Mabini theorized was a causal process, wherein the inevitable decadence and decay that attends civilization does not stifle the progress of universal civilization, because at that point, an adapted, youthful, new nation takes up the mantle of civilization. And this is how he predicted um, 
the future Philippine greatness through this sort of racial civilizational causal role that it would play. Um, so the propagandist theorization of universal civilization had turned to history in order to diminish the importance of the Philippines' perceived cultural and racial inferiority, which they now theorize as a temporary source-sized state, as well as to tie the Philippines to a history of past and universal greatness through association with Asia. Mabini then took their theorization of universal civilization, which was oriented toward the past, and built into it a causal process that predicted the Philippines' future greatness. And in, in, in order to access this incredibly rich, as you say, sort of shifting object, you're situating this work methodologically as well as historiographically in the field of global intellectual history. Um, what is it about that historiography, that perspective that lends itself to the kinds of questions you're asking in this book and allows you to access all of the kind of different pieces that you've just laid out so, so beautifully for us? So the history of the Philippine Revolution has global implications, global considerations, and global roots, but it often operates within an immediately regional rather than global setting, though it does so always with an eye to the perceived distinction between East and West. Therefore, my book attempts a global intellectual history of the Philippine Revolution methodologically rather than only through drawing a necessarily global scope to the revolution. In this way, I believe I share the emergent global intellectual historical field's goal of enlarging the field of intellectual history beyond its canonical figures and texts, who and which have been traditionally located in the West. But what separates this global approach from only being a recuperation of non-Western thought into intellectual history is its broader methodological grounding in service of that aim. This is also what distinguishes global intellectual history's work from that of older area studies models and civilizational units of analysis, which have long looked at canonical non-Western philosophers and thinkers, ranging from Confucius to Tagore. Um, I employ global intellectual history as a method by acknowledging the need to adapt analytical tools in order to bring other overlooked actors into the intellectual historical field. So I look at affective material dimensions in order to recover the pan-Asianism of the periphery, while seeking to make it legible to and included alongside our understandings of the pan-Asianism of the center. And in this way, global intellectual historical approaches draw from older subaltern historical fields, methodological experimentation, but they also depart from those fields in aim, as the emergent global intellectual historical field seeks to make more global and even subaltern forms of intellectual history legible to the prior established intellectual historical field. To study the kinds of intellectual history I wish to, we must necessarily look beyond political treatises, philosophical tracts, and other traditional published and archival sources in order to recreate an intellectual discourse. I looked at poetry, opinion editorials, secret society rights, rumors, political organizing, and emotional narratives and networks, in addition to the traditional sources such as philosophical and political tracts. Um, these expanded sources are necessary to recover peripheral political thought and pan-Asianism in motion as well as in discourse. But I must say that I don't actually think of these sources as necessarily different than the established ones. And I think that's just because I'm interested in the world of ideas as lived experience rather than merely as abstracted discourse. And I believe it to pertain to the widest set of potential actors rather than only to a certain category of thinkers. And as such, I think social history is integral to the kind of intellectual history that I'm interested in. And when you when you lay out the different kinds of sources that you were using, could you say a little bit more about how you sought them out, what kinds of archives or collections you 
found them in and, and what you were reading for if what you were after was this complicated nexus of, you know, imaginings and rather more concrete um, implications for, for what becomes of the Philippines. What, what kinds of things are, were you looking for and what kinds of things were you reading for? So um, I think it's important to note that my history of the Philippine Revolution, um, especially if you're a Filipinist, um, is, a is a revisionist history. So um, I reread a lot of the, the established, published um, record on the Philippine Revolution, um, but from a different angle, um, trying to see it from a, a global lens and a lateral lens rather than a narrowly national lens. And I was just looking to pick up what may have been missed before um, by people's prior perspectives and um, interests. And I found that there was a lot of discourse about Asia right there in the main sources that just hadn't been picked up or put together. And there, there's long patterns to be drawn um, and sort of patterns of thinking and structures of thought that were sitting right there. So I didn't have to go too far out of the main um, sources that were used to tell the history of the Philippine Revolution, you know, the, the thinking of Jose Rizal, the Philippine national hero, um, the records of the meetings of the Katipuna and the secret society that started the revolution. Um, though, of course, I also did a digging outside um, the main historical record in the Philippines. So I went to Cuba and looked at the archives there. Um, I went to Macau. I went to, I spent a lot of time in Spain and um, um, as well as in the UK and the US and sort of pieced together um, a, a fuller picture that tried to not orient um the revolution away from the West or from the Philippines toward Asia in this kind of narrow binary way, but to recover the widest range of structures of thought that I thought were relevant and prevalent within um, the epistemology and political organizing and action of the Philippine revolution. In what you've laid out for us, the political debates and struggles over anti-colonial revolution involve debates over the place of the nation state, over secularism and religion. And all of these questions run through your book and are intimately connected, as you've said, to the larger intellectual convulsions that mark the 19th and 20th century really all over the world. So, you know, debates over sovereignty, civilization, self-determination. How, at the level of the writing, um, did you go about bringing these diverse registers into dialogue with one another? Because you're, you're really moving through all of these um, ways of talking about and talking around the Philippines um, over the course of your book. How, how did you go about bringing all of these things into conversation? So Asia was the framework in which many nationalisms consciously situated themselves in defense against a hegemonic Western worldview and totalizing hierarchical European understandings of race and civilization, whether that hegemony was an aspiration or a reality. Um, that then became my frame to unify and thread the discrepant registers I was dealing with. Focusing on constructions of Asia brought certain aspects of civilization, of race, and of nationalism to the fore while setting aside others. It also gave me a broader frame through which to compare the Philippine case to parallel cases, such as that of Vietnam and Japan most centrally, but also with Korea, China, and the Malay world at certain points in my analysis. And so part of what's running through the book, just, you know, the, the last thing you just said is, is talking about the 
concept of the Malay race, especially because this is one of the questions running through the 19th and 20th centuries in particular. How are you treating race as a concept and as something employed and deployed by by your actors in particular you know you write in your in your second chapter on the malay race um how does that factor into this conversation beyond or or alongside racial notions of civilizations that are are you said uh, pardon me that are as you said binary what is sort of specific about the conversation about race in in the philippines yeah so while employing race as a category and treating races as real, the illustrados, by which term I refer to the educated elite in the Philippines, argued against a fixed ranking of races, supporting instead a multilinear evolutionism rather than a deterministic orthogenetic Darwinism. So to clarify, um, orthogenetic Darwinism is the hypothesis that organisms have an innate tendency to evolve in a unilinear fashion due to an internal driving force, implying that some may be further along this single path of evolution than others, while multilinear evolutionism envisions multiple strands of evolution in different places, implying an agnostic equality across all. And the illustrator's use of racial categories, however, um, even while supporting multilinear evolutionism, had its own hierarchizing logic and involved responses to Western practices of ranking that only served to legitimize the framework of that hierarchizing, as illustrated in their complex relationship with their own Chinese and animist Filipino tribal brothers, whom they denigrate and seek to construct as racially other. Um, one interesting thing to note, that's, and that's specific, as you ask, um, about their construction of race, specifically the Malay race too, is that they theorize race as bearing unique developments arising from climate and environment. Such a particularized evolution builds into race the importance of place, and it actually naturalizes place, you know, embedded as it is in one's historical racial development. In the article Filipinas Dentro de Cien Años, written by the national hero José Rizal in 1889, he discussed his effort to reawaken the Filipinos who, quote, forgot their writings, their songs, their poetry, their laws, in order to learn by heart other doctrines which they did not understand, other ethics, other tastes, different from those inspired in their race by their climate and their way of thinking, end quote. So his mention of climate and consonant ways of thinking carves into a race a certain natural and concrete reality. Race is not merely a social construction. Further, race is inalienable from place, from the place in which it evolved with its particular climate and evolutionary thread. And this understanding transforms what would otherwise be a leveling effect, as one would expect the workings of heat upon all people of all races living in the Philippines to be the same, into a racial attribute and a distinguisher. In, in adapting to a different racist civilization, meanwhile, Rizal saw in the Filipino subject position the ability to recognize civilization and to negotiate with and thrive in the world of the foreign. Within the Illustrados framework of multilinear evolutionism, this racial ability to adapt and absorb from others strengthened the Filipinos' potential, with the ability to adapt to others being an evolutionary trait that white Europeans supposedly did not have in the same store. More generally, I wish to say that anti-colonial nationalisms formed in the interstices of the colonized and colonizers' imaginaries. So it is no surprise that while often arguing against or subverting the Western epistemolo epistemologies that were arrayed against them, 
the colonized also integrated those very epistemologies, particularly with regard to race. Uh, Megan Thomas's work, for example, has highlighted the Filipino Ilustrados' use of Orientalist and Western genres, methods, and semiotics for subversive anti-colonial ends. European Orientalism's statement of difference between East and West obtained not only as intellectual planks supporting Western imperialism, but also then positively and defensively among the Filipinos as the foundation for Asia's unique role within a shared universal history of civilization, and as the foundations for a narrower existential Asian solidarity strategy within a social Darwinist framework. So in this way, discourses of race were employed defensively as part of realpolitik sort of geopolitical strategies, but also positively as part of anti-colonial nationalism's political imagining. And so a large, a large part of what you're telling us really has to do with not just the situatedness of the Philippine project and of the conversations that are circulating, but really about how ideas and people are traveling in between, you know, as you put it, of course, in scare quotes, the metropole and the imperial peripheries, as well as how they're circulating inside of regions, which themselves are being constituted by that very movement. Um, you've, you've mentioned it a little bit, but could you talk a bit more about how you're thinking through place and movement in your work, especially when there's a doubling happening, of course, because your actors are thinking about place and movement while you're trying to narrativize place and movement um, as, it, as it comes about over the course of the period you're looking at? So in terms of movement... Pan-Asianism was a network and practice that took place largely in Asian cities, particularly Yokohama, Kobe, Tokyo, Hong Kong, and Singapore. And in fact, these places and their these place names appear almost as a refrain, occurring with nearly rhythmic regularity in the Spanish religious and colonial officials' notes. And these place names are always encountered with a certain threat. Um, these hubs of regional anti-colonial subversion arose due to Japan's singular position as an Asian model to be followed, but also due to the particular international relations of the region at the time. The context of multiple colonial powers administering separate but neighboring Asian colonial territories set the limits and field for pan-Asian activism, which danced around instances of imperial rivalry and cooperation. For a Filipino under Spanish colonial repression, Colonial British Hong Kong was an unintended site of resistance. Both the colonies of other powers and Europe itself became havens for transnational activism directed at other colonizers. At the same time, Japan's own ambitions in the international world made Japan susceptible to French pressure to extradite Vietnamese revolutionaries such as Tham Boi Chao, for example. In the end, Tokyo disavowed any official aid to Asianist revolutionaries, even while Certain of its government officials, political parties, and branches of governments extended their own unofficial assistance. That said, I'm not fetishizing travel or movement. Um, my beloved colleague, Patricio Abinales, pointed out to me recently that in my book, Yokohama and Hong Kong emerge as a kind of anti-colonial pan-Asian version of London and Paris for early 20th century global Marxism. And I agree with him. I think that there's something special about cities to this history. But even after admitting that, I don't fetishize travel necessarily because I find that the power of the international obtained even for those who did not travel and were decidedly local. I opened my book with a couple of stories about Visayan millenarian prophecies and rural rumors. So in 1883 on Samar Island in the Visayas region, rumors spread that there was a new king named Conde Leines. 
and that a German steamship would arrive in Catbalogan to declare that Spain did not own the Visayas Islands. In 1887, in Zambanguita, in Negros Oriental, Ponciano y Lopre, known as Dios Pujaui, or God Waterspout, announced himself as God, freed his followers from obligation to pay tribute to the Spanish government, and organized an upland regime. He was reputed to be able to summon rain and to produce coins from a squash or from leaves floating on a river, and these coins were said to come, quote, from America. I think this is important because the presence of international elements by which I mean references to the larger geopolitical framework of power that ordered the world, in such local, rural, Visayan millenarian imaginings, illustrates a transnationalized setting in which ideas of social regeneration and later anti-colonial revolution evolved in the Philippines. And it is an antidote to overly binary understandings of local and global. That also relates, I think, to my approach to place. There can be a false dichotomy erected in studies of anti-colonial nationalism and global history more generally um, between a global camp trafficking in cosmopolitanism, transnational entanglements, networks and flows on the one hand, and a conservative camp attended to place a nation on the other. Rather, at the turn of the 20th century in Asia, the crucial period for the proliferation of the nation state and attendant anti-colonial nationalisms, the two sides are dialectically constituted. Many Western empires premise their conquest and civilizing mission on the enshrinement of a certain idea, a manifestation of reason, as endowing them with a right to rule, whether it was the due earthly dominion of Christianity under the Spanish, or the technological capacity to till the land and assume true ownership over it under the British. And in response, some of the strongest critics of various empires rested their arguments on place, on the legitimate affective ties of place and group with these affinities providing, in and of themselves, claims to rule. Political effective place is thus the decidedly non-universal plane upon which to attach and organize a geography of political affinity in the manner of Edmund Burke. Burke's understanding of place was both territorial, the significance of a particular physical space with its history, land, rivers, and monuments, and also social, involving origins, distinction, social position. As Uday Singh Mehta has argued, for Burke, place was the basis of political society and formed the ground upon which other political notions such as duty, freedom, and order gained meaning. So in the way that I've used place in my book, I see it as the movable, localized counterpoint to the universal Enlightenment ideals that so often animated non-Western nationalism and nation states in this period, and yet could seem insufficiently specific on their own. It's also a window through which one may see the Asian and Asianist nationalisms that mobilize place as something other than merely a co-opting of Western formulations of the nation state and its foundational ideals, though that work was also underway. Anti-colonial nationalists in Asia at the turn of the 20th century grounded their enlightenment-influenced ideals in a politics and ideology of place that brought imagined historical, cultural, and racial specificity and logics to bear upon their nationalisms and argued that such effective rootedness was their political source of legitimacy. Place provided an entry point for nationalisms constructed in universalist Western grammar to become particularized and specified, even exceptionalized in certain imaginations. And I, I want to pick up on that last point that you made, because it's, it's clear that ideas about the Philippines, um, as well as its very constitution in this period, also has a lot to do with layering, meaning, identity, place, and, and all of the things that you've just laid out for us. So whether it's constituted as an anti-colonial 
or, or rather that whether the revolution is constituted as an anti-colonial project um, situated in between and around the Spanish and American empires, whether it's situated in Asia as part of a pan-Asian civilization or conversation, and then the idea of indigeneity, so-called, the, the idea of the, the Malay race, something coming from the very natural environment, all of these things are at play at once, it seems, and are all crucial, uh, as you pointed out, to understanding how the Philippines as a project is constituted. So I'm, I'm really curious as to how, again, at the level of constructing this narrative, how you're keeping these aspects apart when they need to feature as you know, pr- particular stages or particular separate objects um, without losing how interconnected they are, without losing precisely what you just laid out for us, which is that they constitute one another and are emerging um, in this dialectical way. So this is really hard to do. And if I succeeded in it at all, it is due to the excellence of my press, Columbia University Press and the two supremely sophisticated thinkers they brought to my book as anonymous peer reviewers, as well as my colleagues Hayden Cherry, Natasha Perido, and my advisors, Caroline Howen, Ben Kiernan, all of whom read through my manuscript with extreme care and offered me crucial insight for revisions. They helped me see the passage from the much more amorphous and decentralized narrative of my doctoral dissertation through to something more coherent and centrally located. Um, for example, in my doctoral dissertation, I had a chapter that was basically from the decks of the ships um, of the different imperial powers that were attending the Manila blockade during the Spanish-American War. And it jumped from the perspectives of the French to the Germans to the British to the Japanese, um, Japan being a newly uh, admitted member of the imperial club attending this as one of the great powers. Um, And it was wonderful source work, but um, and great for a dissertation because it shows the different archives and registers of which I'm dealing, but for a narrative, it was just too confusing. <laughs> so part of what I learned, I think, in writing this book is how much our academic process contributes to the development of our thinking and our work. Um, those two peer reviewers pushed my analysis to a much more sophisticated place than it could have been on its own. And my community of scholars more broadly, especially people like Jim Richardson and Motoe Taramiwada in particular, were crucial to the creation of my book and helped to shepherd it and make it into something more streamlined and centrally located and coherent. So one of the thing, one of the big changes from my doctoral dissertation to the book was um, in trying to manage all these different global perspectives to return to the Philippines and to be situated within the Philippines, but from there looking outward to the region and seeing what that obtained. Um, and that stable location helped me thread the discrepant registers in a more coherent way than sort of jumping about all over. Um, so I guess, you know, what I learned in the process is that my thinking is hardly my own and it rests instead on the shoulders of my brilliant, brilliant, brilliant colleagues. Um, and that's why even though academia and the humanities is perhaps the loneliest, most thoroughgoingly solitary profession in the world, it's no less a joint endeavor despite our lack of visible or formal teams. And I'm very indebted to them for helping me um, shape the narrative such that it can be more centrally located and coherent. And, and to talk of coherence and, and the people with whom we share our work, I'm, I'm curious about how you think or hope this work could be taught, especially um, 
particularly as with undergraduate teaching, there is, again, a choice to be made about um, source work and talking through debates in both the historiography as well as among our historical actors and laying out a coherent narrative. Um, what sort of syllabus, for example, would you like to see this book situated in? Is there is there a hope that you have for the way a class on, say, Pan-Asianism or a class on global history or a class on um, the Philippines could incorporate the insights that your, your work has brought to bear? It's amazing. You know, it, it took me seven years to produce the book and somehow I've not given any thought to what would happen after it came out. <laughs> I will say, though, that the other day, a colleague from Tsinghua University, when I gave my book launch talk at a seminar there, um, had placed me alongside works from what he called the intra-Asian turn. And he flashed upon the screen three books that were foundational to my thinking, my own work, namely Rebecca Carl's Staging the World, Eris Manella's The Wilsonian Moment, and Michael Gobel's Anti-Imperial Metropolis. I couldn't dream of better company to be in, and I'm, of course, thrilled that that prospect um, were to happen um, again. Uh, global scholars have recently borne out the ways in which anti-imperial and nationalist movements develop not only through interaction between European colonial centers and their peripheries, but also through interaction between peripheries. And of course, this insight built upon the foundational scholarship on anti-colonial nationalism that focused on global connections and transnational transmission of ideas in the crumbling of the Eurocentric order and emergence of what would become the third world. Though quite a good deal earlier, I hope that others will see in my book useful insight for studies of the history of the global south, as well as an interesting companion to some of global history's debates about the rise of the nation state and its teleologies. Southeast Asia always bedevils a lot of the field's assumptions, generally, but also about specifically the anti-theological position regarding the nation state, which focuses on the enduring perceived historical viability of forms alternative to the nation state, um, as well as the literature on the global convergence upon the nation state form. And this is just one of the many reasons why I believe Southeast Asia needs to be better represented in our narratives of global history and our teaching of global history, not to mention our as yet emergent field of global intellectual history, which can be forgiven more in this, given that we're still constructing it. So there's still hope for Southeast Asia therein. <laughs> <laughs> and on, on that question of hope for Southeast Asia, I'm, I'm curious about how you're situating um, the afterlife of the Philippine Revolution, as you put it. Um, in, in the book, you frame it in terms of the third worldism of the later 20th century. Um, could you talk more about how this afterlife or these afterlives may or may not bleed into political life in the Philippines today, and in particular, um, in the kinds of futures that are at play in debates over the place of the Philippines in Asia and, and Southeast Asia in the world? Is, is there something that you've you've sort of seen anew or seen differently um, after having written this book about political life and political conversations um, in Manila and the Philippines more broadly. Yeah, so the Philippine Revolution had wide reverberations in Southeast Asia. Um, and in the region, we have leaders as late as Sukarno referencing the Philippine Revolution as an inspiration. Um, even today, one frequently meets Malaysians named Rizal or Rizal after the Filipino hero Jose, who is often referred to as the greatest Malay. Um, in Indonesia, the most famous Rizal is General Tengku Rizal Nurdin, who became governor of North Sumatra in 1998 and is noted for re-establishing Malay culture there for the first time following the Indonesian Revolution. As for the history of peripheral Pan-Asianism more broadly, 
After World War I, the Bolshevik Revolution and Wilsonian principles undercut the international appeal of pan-Asianism and pan-Islamism. And after World War II, the suffering caused by the Japanese occupation and new exigencies of decolonization and strident domestic nationalisms disenchanted Southeast Asia with the idea of Japanese-led pan-Asianism. Asianism continued to play a role in the Philippines, but from the sidelines, and experimentation with forms of regional solidarity waxed and waned. The global paradigm shifts of the 20th century repeatedly redrew the planes upon which transnational Asia and its models of regional solidarity could rest. And it's in that sense that this longer history of the place of Asia within the Philippine worldview, self-image, and geographies of political affinity and disaffinity gain meaning. It's a history that includes, for example, the creation of post-colonial Mafilindo, the non-political confederation of the three Malay state, nation states of Malaysia, the Philippines, and Indonesia, undertaken by the three countries in 1963, as well as even some of the current Philippine President Duterte's largely unsuccessful attempts to recall such histories as bases to his geopolitical moves. The salient point here being that Asia remains a canvas upon which many project their fantasies and fears, and it remains an interesting index through which to track and refract many of the global historical convulsions of the century. This distinct mode of critique and alternative visions of cosmopolitanism, modernity and world order that pan-Asianism represented are embedded in the foundations of the Filipino nation, as my book argues, and they also abet and inform the more transnational third worldism and more ethnically limited pan-Malayism that would follow. Yet besides this broad historical narrative implying the transition of scale and affinity between various transnational solidarities, we do not yet have a global intellectual historical argument bearing out this 20th century evolution analytically. That's a brilliant global intellectual historical topic that I hope someone with greater linguistic capabilities and general capabilities than I do undertakes. 